It is our privilege to bring to you the following message, supported by the gifts and love offerings of the people of Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. This message was recorded during our normal Sunday morning service times. Pastor Rick Foster is serving as our interim senior pastor here at Rancho Baptist Church. Thank you for joining us on this road trip through the book of Philippians. Pastor Rick has entitled this series, Experiencing the Joy in Our Journey. Today Rick is in Philippians chapter 3, verse 17 to chapter 4, verse 1, in a sermon he has entitled, Do I Need a Red Tie? Let's join Pastor Rick as he explains the art of imitation. Here's Rick. You have your Bibles this morning. Turn, if you would, as Tom was telling, back into the book of Philippians. Um, This morning we're going to be beginning back in chapter 3, starting at uh, verse 17. But before we do that, just would appreciate your prayers for Lucy and I. This coming week we're going to be taking off on some vacation, going back to Colorado. need to check on our home that's there, have our kind of annual routine visits to doctors and dentists and that kind of stuff. So, But we just would have really appreciated if you wouldn't mind praying for us as uh, we get a little bit of a break, uh, break away. But we'll be back just in time for the late August heat wave as we hit the high 90s, I've noticed. So um, we'll, we'll be back after about a week, but would appreciate your prayers for us. Okay, Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. I'm not sure when the last time was that you went to SeaWorld or if you've ever been, but an outing to SeaWorld is almost guaranteed to leave us in amazement at God's creativity in aquatic creation. His hand in the diversity of marine life, I find both amazing and amusing. The last time our family went, and as a family, it's been a while, but last time we went as a family, I remember that we took our seats for one of the big shows. As we waited for the show to begin, I noticed that down front, there was a man in one of the front aisles who was entertaining the crowd. Now, he wasn't telling jokes. He wasn't juggling. He wasn't swallowing fire. In fact, he didn't say a word. He was dressed in black, had a white painted face. And as people walked in, he came up behind them and began to mimic the way they walked, the way they were gesturing, uh, the way they were just uh, doing life. And usually he picked someone who had a unique feature about them in some way, and then he would exaggerate it and literally had the crowd laughing with him, even though he never said a word. And that's the way it is with a mime. Um, mimicking someone can be hilarious. And then there are those times when Mimicking someone isn't so funny. In his autobiography, former baseball manager Billy Martin tells about hunting in Texas with his friend Mickey Mantle. Uh, Mickey had a friend who had a ranch in West Texas and would allow them to come hunt. And so one day they came together um, and Mickey told Billy, stay in the car, I'll go in and talk to my friend, get permission And so he went in, and sure enough, the friend said, sure, go hunt. By the way, would you do me a favor, though? I have a mule who's blind. I don't have the heart to put him down. Would you shoot my mule for me, please? And Mickey said, sure, fine. But when he went up to the car, he pretended to be angry. He storms into the car, slams the door, and and Mickey said, "What's, what's, I mean, his friend Billy Martin said, what's the problem? He said, my friend won't let us hunt. 
I'm so mad at that guy, I'm going to go out to the barn and shoot one of his mules. And then Mantle drove like a maniac to the barn, jumped out, took his rifle, went into the barn, shot the mule, as he had permission to do, and, and, and Martin all the time is protesting, we can't do this! And Mickey said, just watch me. He shoots the mule, turns to come back, he hears two additional shots. He runs out, and there is Billy Martin with his rifle. He says, Billy, what did you do? He said, I'm so mad too, that son of a gun, I just killed two of his cows. Interesting. Even adults can play the game, follow the leader. There's a church I know where a new senior pastor came and began his new ministry. And one of the unique things about that senior pastor is that on a Sunday, he always wore a very bright red tie. It wasn't four weeks before every elder and every staff member began wearing a bright red tie on Sunday mornings. See, like it or not, as independent as we may believe we are as individuals, we have this natural tendency on the inside to imitate others. And the Apostle Paul knows this. He knows that imitation can be incredibly powerful. It can be funny. It can be tragic. It can be really, really positive as a force in our lives. It can be very negative as a force in our lives. And so he wants to harness the power of imitation for our spiritual growth and becoming more like Jesus Christ. Or to put it another way, Paul wants us to learn how to be a master at mime. And that's where his focus is this morning, here in Philippians 3. He knows that this is typically a missing ingredient for most of us. And its absence, its absence explains why at times we lack joy in our journey. So let's examine this morning here, Philippians 3, 17 down to chapter 4 and verse 1, how Paul explains the importance of imitation. And he begins by pointing out that for every believer, imitation is to be part of our lifestyle. Look at how he begins in chapter 3, verse 17. He says, brothers, join me or join in imitating me. Again, look at those words. They leave us in no doubt. Imitation is a command. In other words, it's not an option. It's not an elective to be chosen or to be avoided based on our interests. It's to be part of who we are and what we do as followers of Jesus Christ. In fact, imitation is vital to spiritual growth. If you remember the context of the last couple of weeks, Paul is talking about we are in a progressive journey of becoming more like our Savior. Imitation is part of this. See, most of us would agree, I think we would agree, that a regular study of God's word is essential. But do you realize that that's not enough? Every one of us not only needs to hear the word, we also need to see it. In other words, we not only need explanation, we need demonstration. Why? Why do we need to follow examples? Because that's what helps us 
be able to put truth that we know in our heads then into practice. See, without a commitment to imitation, then we can be tempted to just stuff our heads full of information, but then we avoid the accountability of having to do anything about it. And by the way, Paul's original audience there in Philippi knew exactly what he meant when he used the word there in verse 17, imitate. But do we understand the nature of imitation? That word imitate that Paul uses in the Greek language was a word that would describe how an actor or an actress would play a role. So an actor or an actress was in their day called an imitator since he or she mimicked another. In other words, while on stage, that actor or actress would assume the qualities <clears throat> excuse me, of the person that they were trying to portray in the scene of the play. Now, don't, now don't misunderstand what, what Paul's saying, though. He is not saying that believers are just a play act. It's not that we are just to pretend. Because it's interesting that the root idea of imitation is the very idea of what Jesus uses, that's that word for disciple. In other words, a disciple is a person who commits themselves to another to acquire the way they think and the way they live. That's what a disciple is. And so it's like today, an apprentice in a trade program who's learning what? Plumbing, carpentry, air conditioning. Um, it's the idea behind a residence program for an individual who is becoming a doctor to learn the specialized skills in an area of medicine. And this is why in Mark chapter 3, verse 13 and 14, Jesus called the men he wanted to come alongside and be with him as his disciples. And so what did those men do? They ended up walking and living with Jesus 24-7 for at least we know about three years. So imitation, it can't be practiced at a distance. The word implies a close, personal relationship with someone from whom we learn and adapt our lives on the basis of that close observation of their life. It's, it's literally one, one relationship rubbing off onto another. So when you look at verse 17, brothers, join in imitating me. It really does present us with some penetrating questions to ask ourselves. For example, am I committed to following the example of other people? Or am I so independent that I, that I want to learn, I just don't want to be taught? <laughs> or another question, do I have a close enough relationship with someone who is more spiritually mature, there was a little bit further down the journey than I am, where I can watch their life, am I close enough to them? Or do I hold people at arm's length out of a fear of what they might see in me if they got too close to me? And again, look at verse 17. Paul goes on to say, And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. Keep your eyes on. It means to watch wisely. It means to watch with full attention. Why? Because we, when we imitate someone else, we become like our model. And that's why Paul now turns 
and points out something else about imitation. And that is for every believer, imitation follows the lifestyle of another person. Look at verse 18, down to verse 21. Paul begins and says, For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. We've got to be careful. We've got to watch carefully who we imitate. Why? Because imitation is so powerful. Years ago, one of the presidents of the United States, Calvin Coolidge, invited some people from his hometown. And his hometown was, I think, rural Vermont. Maybe it was rural Connecticut. I forget which state. But it was a very rural area. And they came to dinner at the White House. Well, these country folk had never, ever been in Washington, D.C. They did not know how to act and how to behave on such an occasion. So they thought it was best to do whatever the president did. If he did it, obviously, then that was proper in that setting. Well, after dinner, coffee was served. And they all noticed that when the the president was served coffee, he took a little bit of the coffee in his cup, poured it into a saucer. So they all did the same thing. Then he added a little bit of cream and a little bit of sugar to his coffee. Well, they did the same thing. Then they expected him to take the saucer and sip from it. He didn't. He put it on the floor and called the cat. See, imitation's powerful. So we need to watch wisely what those around us are doing. And Paul is saying, be careful because some are enemies of Christ. In other words, we are to reject bad examples. Verse 19, these enemies of Christ, by the way, notice, he says, I tell you this with tears. In other words, there is no judgmental from a superior attitude. Rather, he is literally in tears over this. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Boy, Folks, if you've never heard it before, please hear it this morning. Not everybody who attends church, not everybody who says or claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ is worthy of imitating. Paul warns us to watch out for imposters. Again, when he talks about enemies of the Christ, he is not referring to unchurched people. He's referring to people that were in the church at Philippi, claiming that Jesus Christ was their Savior, but their lives spoke louder than their words. Boy, nothing really changes, does it? We are surrounded by people who call themselves followers of Christ and want us to follow their lifestyle, but the way they live Their lives literally oppose the gospel. They're enemies of the cross. And notice how Paul says there are four ways in which you can see that they're enemies of the cross and we are then to reject their example. First, notice the direction of their life. Their end is destruction. In other words, they're not interested in growing in their faith. They're probably more interested in growing their reputation. They're more interested in growing their bank account. Ultimately, everything that they value and are working towards is one day going to be destroyed. Because notice how Paul emphasizes the word end. End. In other words, don't just consider what they look like now. Consider what what they're doing now. Where is that going to end up? Their end is destruction. Keep that in mind. Second thing to be watchful for 
Watch how they live to serve their physical appetites. Paul describes it this way, their God is their belly. (laughs) Interesting, he uses that word belly in, in, in a broader way than just stomach to describe literally the sensual. In other words, whatever their bodies want, they give it. So people like this have no problem with immorality, with gluttony, with drunkenness, with materialism. Their God is whatever will please their body. Paul says they're not worthy of following as our examples. Be careful. But third, notice, they take delight in shameful behavior. They glory, he says, in their shame. In other words, the lifestyle or acts of sin that should embarrass a believer literally are a source of delight and pride to them because they literally can point to their freedom and Jesus Christ to then say, I can do whatever I want. I have had a relative of mine tell me, I have no problem doing this sin because later I will ask for forgiveness and God has to forgive me. Look at the fourth one that tells us this is not an example for us, but to reject it. Their minds are absorbed with this world. Paul finishes up by saying their minds are set on earthly things. Which, by the way, this explains the first three to some degree. They have lost their view of eternity or spiritual reality. All they see and care about is the physical world that's right around them now. And that's why Paul's opening words there in verse 18 are so important for us. I've warned you several times. These kinds of people are in the church. Don't imitate them because you will become like them because of the power of imitation. Now, what's the first word of verse 20? What is it it in your Bibles? But, okay, now we move from bad examples to reject to a good examples that we are to embrace. These individuals that Paul includes himself to be a part of give us three powerful characteristics to imitate. First, notice, good examples live as resident immigrants. Verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven. Paul is talking about where our home is. That word citizenship that Paul uses describes a colony of foreigners whose purpose was to secure the conquered territory by spreading the customs and cultures and laws of the victorious country. And the church of Philippi would have understood this image because that's their town. The whole area of Macedonia had been conquered and made, and the city had been made a Roman colony And the legal status that they had as citizens of Philippi gave them privileges to enjoy as if they lived in Rome itself. So the influence of Rome, hundreds and hundreds of miles away, was spread throughout Philippi. So they would appreciate what Paul is saying here. That he's referring that the whole world is an empire over which Christ rules And every Christian now is a resident alien who enjoys full rights and privileges of their faraway home that we'll talk about in just a moment. So they weren't to look to their immediate surroundings to determine the meaning or character or purpose of their lives. Rather, that was all controlled by their citizenship to a kingdom 
from a distance. Paul's point? Imitate those who are fully here, but their mindset reflects the fact that heaven is their real home. Second characteristic of a good example to embrace, get our arms around. Look at the last part of verse 20. Not only is our citizenship in heaven, but from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Second characteristic of a good example, they live waiting for Jesus to return. Now, by the way, that word waiting carries with it the emotion of eagerness. It's kind of like a tiptoe anticipation. Staying with the theme of this morning of... of uh, Theme parks. I have, I have occasionally been at Disney World or Disneyland waiting for the Main Street Disney Parade and have watched little kids who have evidently never seen a parade in their lives. Uh, but as the music begins, their excitement, that child begins to just grow. Their, their, little, their little feet begin to dance. They can't stand still. They're just starting to wiggle all over the place. And their neck cranes, just cranes. You know, they're standing up on tiptoes for that first glimpse of the float carrying Mickey Mouse. They can't wait. That's the emotion behind this word, we're awaiting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So do you have people around you that you're imitating, who live each day with that same eager awaiting of Jesus to return? Is our sense of hope in what this world can offer us or what God's going to do one day? And these first two examples, good examples that Paul gives us here in verse 20, kind of fit really nicely together. Are we living as citizens of heaven and we just can't wait to go home? Do we realize that our stay here is just simply temporary? And so we keep looking for that time when we'll be summoned to leave and go to our real home. Oh, those kinds of people, they're worth imitating. But Paul gives us one more, moving into verse 21. Good examples, they live by anticipating a coming transformation. Verse 21, the Lord Jesus Christ, this is the one who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. In other words, when Jesus Christ returns for us one day, that means he's going to take our weak, our frail, our sin-marred, our sin-marred bodies and complete their transformation into a glorious resurrected body. That means that we will experience life with no more pain, with no more death, with no more sickness, with no more temptation to sin, no more loneliness, no more guilt, no more shame, no more betrayals. Is anybody here excited about that one day? I am. I can't wait. Hold your finger here, if you would. Turn back uh, left in your Bibles to, to Romans 8. We need to go over this just real quickly. We won't take a lot of time, but look at Romans 8, starting at verse 18. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time 
are not worth, though, comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Here, there's that coming transformation. It will happen one day completely. For the creation awaits, here we are, waits with eager longing. See, there's that emotion, tiptoe anticipation. I can't wait for it. For the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Notice, notice, this life will always have a feeling of bondage. This life, there will always be a sense in which we groan in it. But one day, one day we will experience freedom like we've never, ever known. So can I just tell you this morning? Remember then, this life will never fully satisfy us. Drop that expectation. This life is not where our identity as a person is found. Drop that expectation. This life is going to hurt us. So drop the expectation that we have the right to experience convenience or complete and utter peace. Instead, may our expectation as Romans 8 and and Philippians 3 expresses to us, may our expectation be that while we are here on earth, will our Lord care for us? Absolutely. We know He's promised that. He will care for us. But full and complete satisfaction will only come that day when He returns for us and we get to see Him face to face. It's all about, a lot of it's about our expectations. So again, what's Paul trying to really hammer home here? Be wise about who we mimic. Harness the power of imitation by making sure that the relationships that rub off on you are really good examples. So Paul has told us how imitation is to be part of our lifestyle and that imitation is following another's lifestyle. Finally, though, and by the way, this is one of those places where there is an absolutely horrible chapter break. And by the way, you all know that chapters and verses were not part of the original documents. You know that, don't you? Okay, good. I just want to make sure. This is a horrible one because verse 1 of chapter 4 belongs with the paragraph that's where we're in right now. But notice how Paul mentions that for every believer, imitation produces a stable lifestyle. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown... Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. See, if we're careful about imitating good examples, then something positive is going to occur. We'll experience stability. We're able to stand firm, as Paul encourages us to do. And in fact, isn't just like what Paul is expressing for the Philippians church, isn't this a stability that we wish for others around us? I mean, stand firm. That's a military term. It describes a soldier standing at their assigned post regardless of the pressures that they are under to abandon it. 
And Paul, he's got such a love and a concern for the believers there in Philippi that he wants them to experience stability in their lives, a stability of emotion, a stability of action, even in the pressure, even under pressure to turn and to run. And isn't that what we as parents want to see in our children, that they grow up and have stability? Isn't that what all of us who have our friends, we wish that for our friends, they grow and have stability. Isn't that what, for those of you who are teachers in any capacity, don't we want that for our students? So do we point to those that are around us as our kids, as our friends, as our students? Do we point out to those we love the stabilizing power of imitation? Do we encourage them to mimic godly examples by getting close enough to watch them and learn from them? So when we look at chapter 4 and verse 1, what Paul says is this is not just a stability we want for others, this is also a stability we would want to possess for ourselves. So when you look at that and, and realize that stand firm is connected to Join in imitating me, verse 17. Who have we identified in our lives? Who's worthy of imitation? Someone who is an example to us of how to speak up for Christ and be lovingly bold about our faith out in the marketplace, in our jobs, in our schools? Have we identified someone who models how to serve our Savior even when it gets tough and we get tired. Someone who can show us how to trust what God is doing in our lives, even when the pain is intense and our circumstances make absolutely no sense to us. Do we have men and women in our lives that we can imitate who can show us the way? And again, that kind of leads us all the way back to where we started. Being committed to the power of imitation by getting close enough to godly examples so that their lives rub off on us, that we're willing to be held accountable for the truth we know so that others can help us put that truth into practice. Can I tell you about someone who I have been challenged to mimic? His name is William. William William is from a very wealthy American family. That's not why he's worthy of imitating. That's just his background. He graduated from the prestigious university, Yale University. During his years on campus, though, he was deeply influenced by a group of other believers who met to study God's word together, and then they would go out and minister to others based upon what they were studying. William's last name is Borden of Borden Dairy which was, years ago, a very successful family-owned business. And so while he was in university, William's inheritance was in the millions of dollars. But as the book about his life, Borden of Yale, describes, during his college years, by the leading of the Lord, but to the dismay of many, he gave all of his inheritance away. And he wrote in his diary two words, no reserves. 
In the summer between his third and fourth year at Yale, he took a trip around the world and was so profoundly impacted by seeing millions of people who had never, ever had the chance to even hear the gospel that he made the decision to give his life to Christ as a missionary. Instead of, after graduation, joining in the family business. Now, many thought that he was foolish to walk away from that, from the financial security and from the lifestyle of living in the United States. But Borden, William Borden, loved the Lord Jesus more than anything else in the world, and he wanted to serve him. And at that time, he wrote two more words in his diary, no retreat. So after graduation, as part of his training to go into western China, he uh, went to Egypt to learn Arabic and to learn um, its culture. But while he was in Cairo, he contracted a fatal disease and suddenly died. <laughs> he had literally given up everything to follow Jesus and wanting to serve him. And by his bed was his journal, his diary, and they found that he had written two final words in it, no regrets. Even though dead, William Borden speaks to me. The words in his diary reflect the choices that he made that are still worth imitating today because he made the choice to live with no reserves, no retreat, no regret. Wow. I think Paul would have approved. <laughs> Father, those are the kinds of individuals that, whether it is in real life, whether it is in biographies that have been saved for us, these are men and women that are worth imitating. And there are probably dozens and dozens of dozens of other names and stories that I could have mentioned this morning. But you know how those three statements continue to haunt me in a good way. In a good way. And Father, for my life and for all of us here this morning, I pray that we would be the kind of people that follow Paul's instructions. Because Paul would be the first one to say, as he did in 1 Corinthians 11:1, 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So literally, we are looking for the Christ-likeness in others to imitate and mimic. Father, would you give us the commitment and understanding of the power of imitation, but put it into practice. To seek out and pursue those around us. To not keep them at arm's length but to draw near and to let them in on us that their lives might rub off on us in good ways and that together we journey towards Christ-likeness. Father, again, our faith in you is personal, but it's not private. And there is a way in which we are joined by brothers and sisters, sisters around us all heading in that same direction. May we come alongside by our choices to imitate that which ultimately is of you. Father, that's our prayer this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks for being with us today. 
It's always a pleasure to serve you with this CD ministry. Here at Rancho Baptist Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who love God, love others, and live to reach their world for Christ. And if you have any questions regarding this sermon, or just perhaps knowing God in a deeper way, don't hesitate to give us a call. Our phone number is area code 951-676-2911. Or you can reach us on the web at www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. That's www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. Have a great day in the Lord, and God bless you as you continue to walk with Him.